Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Historians have become increasingly interested in material culture as both a category of analysis and as a teaching tool. Yet the profession tends to be suspicious of things. Words are at stock and trade. So what new insights can historians gain about the past by thinking about things? The central object and consequence of modern warfare is the radical destruction and transformation of the material world. Yet we know little about the role of material culture in the history of war and forced displacement. Objects carried in flight, objects stolen on battlefield, objects expropriated, reappropriated, and remembered. The book Objects of War illuminates the ways in which people have used things to grapple with social, cultural, and psychological upheavals wrought by war and forced displacement. The program today is part of our Bringing War Home project. Utah Public Radio is partnering with the uh, College of Humanities and Social Sciences, Mountain West Center for Regional Studies, USU History Department, USU Muse- Museum of Anthropology at USU. Um, and for this project, uh, the project funded by a grant from the National Endowment for Humanities Dialogues on the Experience of War program and broadcasts of Bringing War Home on Utah Public Radio are supported by Utah Humanities. So today we bring in the editors of this book, Objects of War. Leora Oslander is Professor of European Social History and Arthur and Joanne Rasmussen, Professor of Western Civilization at University of Chicago. She's author of Cultural Revolutions and Taste and Power. Leora Oslander, uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, and uh, Tara Zara is Professor of East European History at the University of Chicago. She's author of Kidnapped Souls, Lost Children, and the Great Departure. Uh, Tara Zara, thank you for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, so, a very interesting book, um, and um, I want to start with the, where you start with the, just the introduction of the of the book. Uh, you cite some, uh, you know, just a very impactful um, photographs, uh, reports, uh, for cell phones, life jackets, and toys uh, from uh, coming out of uh, with people coming out of the war in Syria. So, refugees, and uh, you cite the documentary photographer Brian Sokol's most important things series which show refugees and items of both sentimental and practical value. For example, a Syrian man with keys to an apartment, which may no longer exist, a little girl with a pair of jeans, a woman in her wheelchair. Um, and then this, uh, this really got me. Uh, the organization Mercy Corps depicts a seven-year-old boy with a small toy robot. Um, and the caption, Muhammad, age seven, his family have lived in Jordan for two years now. He's holding a birthday gift from his grandfather. The robot toy reminds him of his grandfather, who's now in heaven. And so you write that uh, that people, uh, refugees, people fleeing war, um, have gone to considerable lengths to preserve objects like this, despite their everydayness. Um, so, Lior Oslander, I guess this is, uh, you're getting into the meaning of these objects, right? Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, the, the what we are seeking to do in this project is to understand what people are doing when they take these things. If you imagine the the burden and the difficulty of hanging on to a robot or to um, a, a, a pen or any any object, a doll is another frequently carried object, as people are fleeing across um, boundaries, are um, struggling to exist, it gives you a sense of the investment there. Um, and so we're trying to understand why uh, people have gone to such trouble and what we can learn about the experience of displacement and violence through what objects they carry, how they treat those objects, what stories they tell about those objects, who they give those objects to if they, if they pass them on to someone else. 
So, Terrazara, um, the description of the book, we, you talk about uh, the fact that some scholars, I guess, still want to go by the word, right, to the written word, but uh, objects can be powerful, and sometimes objects are the only thing we have, right? That's true. Um, one thing that's so interesting and important about looking at material culture in studying migration is that um, it allows us to understand the experience of people who might not be documenting their experiences with words or um, able to do that. Um, so, I mean, if you think about children, that's a great example. They're not necessarily going to be writing about how they're feeling, um, but they are conveying something about um, the meaning of home in particular, Um for them through the objects that they bring along with them. So, Leroy Oslander, what, uh, I guess it's a full range of things, right? Uh, dolls, musical instruments, tools, dish towels, eyeglasses. It could be anything. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that the one of the things uh, that we attempt to, to grapple with in the volume and that the authors uh, who are published there do, as well as ourselves and our other places that we've worked, is to, to understand what it is that people choose. I mean, sometimes it's really not much choice, and it's what you happen to be, you know, have at hand when you're forced to leave. But quite often, um, and more often, I, I would argue, people are deciding among the stuff that's available to, that they could tar- carry with them. And those decisions are often very painful and stressful and difficult. Um, I've read lots of memoirs where people recount, yes, we were leaving this place and had you know, three minutes to decide what to grab. And I'll always regret that I didn't take this other thing that I left, that I left behind. I took something silly or trivial. So, um, but but there's, it's never an accident what people grab at that point. It has some kind of meaning, and so and it's often not the most monetarily valuable object that that they that they grab hold of. It's something that has a, a strong affective or memorial quality to it. I want to just follow up on that, uh, Terrazara. I'll have you respond to this uh, in an introduction to the to the book. Uh, you quote Sammy Dasa, who survived World War II, and. Uh, he wrote, uh, in, 19, in 1942, I was able to get two or three things out of the house, but they were banal and useless things. So uh, so Sammy Adasa regretted that, as uh, Lior Oslander was saying. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think Lior sort of explained really well that, um, you know, when when somebody is under intense psychological and physical pressure, um, they are going to reach for something and it might have meaning, but it might not be the thing that they later wish they'd taken. Um, Nonetheless, I think one of the things that our authors do that is really um, interesting and important is they show how the meaning of those things can actually change uh, quite a bit over time, you know, from an object that might have had a more utilitarian purpose um, before the migration to something that then takes on a, a really huge symbolic value as um, as a source of, of memory um, after the displacement. Lira Oslander, um, I want to ask you about transformation of things. You, you talk about this, some of your authors uh, talk about this, right? That, um, mm-hmm. For example, uh, a vase crafted from a spent artillery shell. Uh, so it doesn't just hold flowers. Uh, you know, it has further meaning. A spoon from a concentration camp is now not merely something used to eat, for example. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and this builds on what what Tara was just talking about. That to to follow up on the spoon example, uh, there's a record of a spoon that's now in Yad Vashem, in Israel. Um, that and and there's a narrative that goes with that with that spoon, and it's the uh, the person recounting it is the daughter of the woman who brought who rescued the spoon from an extermination camp, and she talks about how uh, much to her interviewer's astonishment, she uses the spoon every to feed. She's used the food, the spoon, to feed all of her children. Um, and the interviewer was kind of astonished. She said, you know, why would you use something that has such horrible memories to feed your babies with? And the woman's response was, this is my revenge. This is, you know, this is life. This is continuity. This is the future. And so here's a spoon that was originally just, to, you know, banal thing to eat with that became this uh, invested with extraordinary meaning. Uh, through the camp experience, and then gets reinvested in some sense with its original meaning. That is, it's a it's a feeding object, and yet with a whole other overlay. That every time she uses it, she's commemorating her family who was who was killed in the camps and investing in the future. And uh, Terazara, uh, these things with with the meaning attached uh, get passed down, right? And and uh, retain that, or maybe that changes over time to, uh, according to the descendants. Absolutely. Um, people uh, often go through, go to great uh, lengths to pass down those objects. Um, they more recently, um, you know, particularly in the case of the Second World War and the Holocaust, um, have uh, ended up in museums as well. So they have kind of third lives as repositories of um, public memory as well as personal memory. Um, and then, of course, I guess there are people who may decide later on that they don't want to live with these things anymore if the memory is, is too painful for them. Yeah, I want to follow up on, on that. Um, there's, there's a quotation in the book. I'm trying to find this here. Um, about I'll, I'll just refer to it, have uh, Lior Oslander uh, talk about this, maybe, if you remember this. Um, uh, a woman who I guess went back to the to the house. The sister's dead, mm. and and she says, "I uh, it, it, it's very painful for her because everything was in its place uh, be, as before." The the sister, I guess, I don't know. She went off a concentration camp or something, um, and and so all the objects around her are now painful. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think that's uh, Shahzad Delbo's um, story. That yes, I mean there are times when um, the the fact that things can outlive the people to whom they were attached, and, and whole settings, whole apartments, whole homes can outlive uh, the people who inhabited them can be excruciating for the survivors. It can be almost like an insult. Um, and uh, and you keep they keep looking for the person who gave meaning to to the space uh, and who enjoyed that space, and so uh, there are many stories of of survivors, descendants of all kinds of, of many wars and 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 moments of forced migration, uh, rejecting the idea of living in their parents' home even if they could, or um, or or continuing to possess uh, to possess a thing um, after. Afterwards, uh, there's also an issue, and this maybe take you somewhere you don't want to go, but let me let me float it anyway. Which is that uh, there's also a question of what happens with succeeding generations. That is, how it, what will happen to to books that nobody knows how to read anymore, and and the, the decision to to give a thing away to a, to a place where it can be better used, like a museum or an archive, where it can become part of the historical record. 
Yeah, that is interesting. Um, uh, maybe have you follow up on that. It's uh, it, you know the, the, these objects take on a life of their own. We'll get into later. You talk about how you know objects are. They're not autonomous beings, right? But uh, they can resist, <laughs> um, and you know, decay in different ways, uh, change in different ways that maybe we don't um, that we don't want them to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and that's um, and this notion of of recalcitrance. I mean, there's uh, there's an idea. Some people would push it so far as to say that that things really act in the world. Um, and it, with with some kind of intentionality, I myself wouldn't go there I, to the point of intentionality, but they definitely do do things. Um, and they uh, in in our in our volume, um, there's discussion of, for example, um, the ruins being brought uh, that Bonnie Efros describes from Algeria to France, sinking the ships that they were being carried in mm-hmm. because they were just too heavy, or um, or objects breaking as they are transported um, from one place to another, um, or starting to leak if it's a vase, or all of the ways in which they cease to be functional in the way in which they were supposed to, or just refuse to get to where they were supposed to be. Mm. Uh, have you, I'll have you, Tara Zara, uh, talk about this as well. Any response to that? Oh, I, I mean, I would, I would just repeat um, really what Leora had to say, is that um, one of the most interesting um, I think insights that scholars of material culture um, have to bring is how they, they, by focusing on the materiality of, of things, they kind of, uh, they emphasize to us the extent to which our material world uh, isn't just a background for our lives, but can act on our lives in meaningful ways. Now, objects can be can be used intentionally, right? Like by museums, you you write um, some Holocaust museums ask visitors to uh, step inside a cattle car, right, to get, to get that experience, or walk on a very unstable surf, surface to provide more vivid uh, sense of deportation. So, Leora Oslander, uh, or there's there's an example in the book about um, y- you can you can take a cruise on a refugee ship in Australia. Yeah, that, it, it, that's a, um, been a movement um, among curators and museum professionals to try to, as well as reenactors, of course, um, that is those who reenact most famously civil war battles, to an idea of embodied history. That is, that in order to really get a sense of what it was like to be in a certain context, you really need to re-experience it, not just see it in it, not see an object in a case and read the text that accompanies it to explain it, but that there's a way in which um, you need to smell it, you need to feel it, you need to be in the dark in the case of a cattle car or, or compressed into a small space and in in to, to understand what being in a tight cell in a prison would have been, would have been like. Um, or Colonial Williamsburg is another example where, people, where, the music, where it's a whole town that's a museum that tries to convey what it meant to live without electricity or water, for example, or, or running water by by having visitors spend an evening in that in that context. So it's the idea of learning through all five senses at once and not just through one's eyes. Mm. So Tara Zara, um, maybe talking about the power of objects versus words, right? Words can be powerful, but objects, uh, I'm recalling my visit to, to the National Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. I think the thing that hit me the most was the the, the, there's a bin of shoes there, <clears throat> shoes from, uh, you know, actual Holocaust um, victims, uh, objects that you can actually, you know, see and um, 
imagine the smell and, you know, just imagine those uh, shoes on those folks. Uh, that was very, very powerful. Yes. I mean, um, I think partly because those objects are really powerful, physical reminders of the humanity of the individuals um, affected. And, and oddly, there's a way in which, a, you know, a pile of shoes could evoke very um, individual experiences in some way. Um, and I think that's, that's generally true, and that's partly why why museums, um, as you know, and curators, as Leora just mentioned, have been moving toward trying to put visitors in direct contact with um, with objects and also um, with the sensory experience of the past. Um, uh, Leora Sonder, this struck me particularly. Um, I'll just quote this from the book: uh, seeing a bra painstakingly assembled by an inmate of a concentration camp effectively conveys the intensity of the quest for dignity, modesty, and sexuality in a context designed to destroy all these qualities. That's an unexpected object. Yeah, um, it was to me, too. Um, In the course of my own research, um, which is obviously related to to this book, um, that I I found um, that there are numerous extant bras uh, being held in repositories across the world, as well as in people's closets and drawers and attics, um, that um, that women made while they were being held in both labor, mostly labor, some extermination camps during the during the Second World War, and they're an extraordinary source for understanding that experience, as well as extraordinarily moving uh, in them in themselves, because um, we know we have we have data about how many calories prisoners were given or about how much they weighed when they left. And those, you know, that those, that data is extraordinarily important and, and telling. But it's when you see this, the bras that you um, can get a different sense of, of a person's dimensions at, at that point. But above all, the whole question of it, you had to steal thread, you had to figure out how to get a needle, you had to figure out how to get fabric and how to cut the fabric. All of these things were extraordinarily difficult to do under the circumstances. So it conveys much more powerfully, I think, uh, the importance of a certain kind of femininity, because no one needed a bra in any kind of classical sense in when they were a prisoner uh, in those contexts for their survival. There were other ways to stay warm. There were other ways uh, to clothe one. One, one. one had to have something on top of it in any case. So it, it makes it very clear that uh, the desexualization that, uh, that was part of the process of dehumanization in these camps um, was struggled against, fought against, resisted, and the fact that they chose to carry out the bras when they left, that they took them with them, that they preserved them, that they keep, kept them around, gave them to their children, is also gives you a clear sense of their investments, the, the survivors' investment, or the people to whom they gave those, for those who did not survive, um, of this uh, vision of their femininity uh, in this extraordinary circumstance. Uh, Tara Zara, I want to ask you, um, is there, just open-ended, is there an object that's really surprised you as you've, you know, studied objects of, of, of war, especially? Well, I mean, I, I have to say my own research has not been primarily on material culture, and mm-hmm. I've learned through my work with Leora and with the authors of this volume to pay more attention to it um, and think about it more. Um, I think you know, maybe just building on um, 
what what Lior just said, the the importance of certain kinds of um, personal objects of personal hygiene, I guess, has been interesting. I've I've studied displaced persons after World War II and um, also uh, found that in in camps and so on that um, people would um, really value either take along with them or value the acquisition of cosmetics and other kinds of um, uh, combs, those kinds of things that, that were, that enabled them in some way to um, reestablish gender roles that had been um, upset uh, or, you know, uh, deliberately um, demolished during the war. Um, So that. That was both really interesting to me and and surprising. Yeah, interesting. Uh, so, Lior Oslander, I want to ask that same open-ended question to you. We, you know, we talked about the bra. That's pretty surprising. Anything else is, is particularly surprised you as you've studied objects? Um, I think that why, this is actually more from the volume than from my own research. I was surprised. This is from Brandon Schechter's paper in the in the volume. The particular relationship between soldiers and their weapons. Um, and the uh, almost affection that um, they ha- have for them in certain contexts, it made sense to me. Um, once, once, uh, once I read about it, once uh, scholars who work on that, that uh, one Brandon and others who work on that question, I had known about pilots during the Second World War um, decorating their the fuselages of their airplanes um, before. But um, I, it, I think the, the, that seems to me, it surprised me and seemed to me very interesting and frankly a little um, and, and quite disturbing about um, how soldiers are dealing with, um, with the fact that they are in, not only in danger of being killed, but their job is to kill people. And, and how they're relating to the tools that they are using to kill those people, um, which is by domesticating them, having affection for them. They also rely on those, wep- those weapons, those tools, to survive themselves. If you're gun jams, you get killed instead of killing someone else. So there's a kind of care in, invested in it, but also a sense of its aesthetic, of its beauty, um, of it being a friend that I thought was something that would be well worth uh, us all thinking about more as we think about how people are socialized to accept and enact violence. Let's uh, take a break. When we come back, I want to uh, jump into there's, there's a whole section in the book about, um, you know, state violence, right? Uh, nations invading other nations. Um, and of necessity, uh, material culture is disturbed. There's intentional ways that states um, deal with objects. I want to talk about that general uh, topic when we come back. We are talking with the editors of uh, the book um, Objects of War, and uh, they are Lior Oslander, Professor of European Social History, and Arthur and Joanne Rasmussen, Professor of Western Civilization at University of Chicago, and uh, Tara Zara, Professor of East European History at University of Chicago. This program is part of our Bringing War Home project, and uh, that project is funded by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities Dialogues on the Experience of War program, broadcasts of Bringing War Home on Utah Public Radio, supported by Utah Humanities. And you can find out more about Bringing War Home uh, on upr.org. Um, just a link over there, and uh, there are some road shows coming up. The next one is on the 22nd of uh, October uh, in Moab. More following this. 
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about uh, a book, Objects of War. And we're talking with the editors. Lior Oslander is a professor of European social history, and Arthur and Joanne Rasmussen, professor of Western civilization at the University of Chicago. And uh, Tara Zara is professor of East European history at the University of uh, Chicago. So I'd like to jump into uh, the section of the book, um, several chapters on, uh, we were talking early in the program mostly about individuals, right? But I wanted to pull this out and talk about uh, state, state versus state violence. Uh, you know, war, and um, what nations are trying to do as they, as they attempt to uh, conquer, dominate other nations in the material uh, realm. Um, so, uh, Leo Oslander, I wonder, um, maybe give us a little bit of the, the history here. There's, uh, as long as there's been war, as long as another one nation is trying to dominate another nation, um, objects have, have been part of that, and sometimes purposeful, purposely so, I, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, part part of the reason the 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 reason why states have have taken stuff uh, when they've invaded is, is just pragmatic. I mean, they, they, it's a plundering of wealth. So it's it's sheer theft. It's the acquisition of the of the stuff of another society. Some, and often, in the case of an invading army, uh, it's stuff that they needed. So they burn up furniture because they need heat. They um, and uh, and steal clothing because they need warmth and so on. So there's just pragmatics to it. But more interestingly, in a way, is the symbolic value. And so they're um, part of conquering another people uh, is uh, is destroying their culture often. And so the and the, and and one of the instantiations of their culture are the things that they have, both everyday things and museum collections and so on. So it is at the same time as you um, have a physical presence in the, in, a, in a conquered territory. There's a, an effort to create a tabula rasa often or a blank surface on which you can recreate um, a new culture. This is particularly the case um, often in settler colonial projects. And so that's, uh, that's been part of the motivation for destruction and then often reconstruction in, uh, of new cultural forms that are better suited to the conquerors than to those being conquered. And Terrazar, of course, this, uh, this has an effect on you know, uh, the meaning of these objects, um, and sometimes unattended effects, I would imagine, uh, to what the conqueror wants uh, versus the uh, the conquered. Absolutely. I mean, I think um, Alice Goff's essay in our volume really speaks well to that, um, that problem, um, as does the uh, essay by Bonnie Efros. And this goes back to the uh, the materiality of the objects um, in that sort of the, the very logistics of transporting these objects um, often results in them getting becoming broken or damaged um, and uh, not necessarily serving the purpose that they were supposed to, which was somehow to represent the, the glory uh, of, and the power of the, of the conqueror. Lira Oslander, um, you referred to museums earlier in the program, and this is a particular ongoing problem, right? Um, so in the past, uh, you know, museums founded on pillaged goods, uh, you know, maybe would celebrate that as they're trying to celebrate the, the, the nation, that the, the conquering nation. Uh, problematic nowadays, right? Um, on How do we understand this and the, these objects? 
Yeah, no, you that is that is a a huge uh, a huge contemporary issue as you as you note. And indeed, I mean um virtually all European powers um who gathered the the collections of of most major museums uh as well as um many of the collections in the United States um did so through the acquisition of either plundered goods or the or goods that w- appeared on the market that had been plundered by someone else but often with an with an argument that it was um a salvatory project that is that um that the peoples who had who had the pro- the objects were not able to protect them adequately um and so that this was, and that these were magnificent works that belonged to all of humankind and so um it was really a salvage operation and that one was serving uh the world as at as a whole through um, museumifying these objects in London, Paris, Berlin, uh, New York. And uh, and that was pretty widely accepted, I think, uh, not 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 by the people who's from whom the objects were taken, but but um, but broadly beyond. And that has been highly contested um, in the last 60 years or so. Um, it was contested before, but the, it has become increasingly so. And there are many restitution projects in, ongoing. Um, to return um, goods to the descendants of the of the peoples or to the territories from which they were originally taken, and uh, on the argument that they are the cult- cultural heritage of a specific area, specific people, specific culture, and they are entitled to have them if they if they want them. Um, and uh, there are still discussions that go on about whether there's the capacity to protect them adequately. But I think these days the general Consensus is that uh, that it's 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 important that a culture has 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 its its own things in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tara Zara, uh, I wonder uh, if we could bring this to you know immediacy uh, to today, right? We we opened talk. You opened the book talking about uh, Syria and the Syrian refugees, the objects that they carried out, um, and uh, you know Ukrainian refugees. Uh, most recently, and refugees all over the world, uh, they all have objects. Museums are going to want uh, some of these things, right, to preserve these, but families are going to want these things as well. How, uh, I don't know if there's some best practices that have, have sprung up. Right. Well, I, I mean, if you're talking about um, objects that people bring with them, of course, that continues, and I've I've been... Um, trying to follow in the news, there are always, you know, with every conflict, you, you increasingly see articles precisely about um, about this. Um, and then there's also the issue of um, the destruction of culture and cultural sites, which Ukraine has many. And, um, you know, I think there's obviously a mobilization to try to protect those sites, but I don't know that it's clear at this point what will what will actually happen um, either to the uh, to the property of people that's left behind, um, which is often contested or appropriated, or to the cultural artifacts in Ukraine. I think a lot depends on the outcome of of this war. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Lior Oslander, I wonder if you talk a little bit about this. Um this really struck me from the book. Um, I was talking about museums and families, and this is a conflict between a family and a museum. Uh, Pierre Lelou, um, who died, I think, uh, in in the Holocaust, and uh, this was a suitcase, right, or valise? Yep. 
um, that was what, at one museum, then it was loaned reluctantly to another museum. And at that mm-hmm. point, the son, I believe, encountered this. Yeah, this. I mean, it's it's a it's an amazing story, but it and it can stand in for many such. It is, uh, yeah, uh, Pierre Levy, which was his name before the war, it became Le Le, which was a less Jewish name during the war when he was in hiding, was deported to Auschwitz, and his suitcase went with him at that time, and uh, he died there. He was killed there, and the Auschwitz Memorial Museum uh, had the had the retained the suitcase and then loaned it to a museum in Paris. Um, and you're right, reluctantly, because in in a way they were afraid of exactly what happened. Uh, Surprisingly, it was actually his granddaughter and his son who went to visit it together, and she recognized, uh, she saw his name, her grandfather's name, on the ticket, the label on the suitcase. And that started a years-long court case uh, and conflict because the family really wanted it back. They had nothing of his, and they wanted the suitcase. Um, And the the, the Auschwitz Memorial Museum um, made the argument that it was impossible to restore it to the family because it was an essential proof of the reality of the Holocaust and that they had to retain all of the relics that they had uh, in Auschwitz and, and so not only that they had to be kept out of private hands, but they needed to be at the site itself in order to have a corpus, a body of things that could um, effectively counter the argument that the Holocaust had not happened. And so they were, you know, it was too bad about the family, but that it, the, it was, it was it's essential that the political goal of uh, Holocaust remembrance um, be, uh, be fulfilled, even at the cost of the survivor's family's pain. The resolution in that case was, after, again, as I say, years of litigation, was that the suitcase is now on permanent loan to the the Center of Documentation in Paris, um, where the family can visit it. Um, But it has stayed in the the public domain. Auschwitz Museum has not given up ownership. And so they tried to to square the circle that way, um, to, to maintain it in public so that it could serve its testamentary value, but still give the family access. The family wasn't so satisfied, but yeah, was, I don't, okay. I don't, yeah, I wouldn't imagine. That's a, that's a very, it's poignant, right? Because that's uh, it's not only meaning, but it's ownership of yeah. of this this object. I I can't imagine. I mean, <laughs> the the son comes and encounters this the the you know the suitcase that he saw in his father's hand the day he he left and never came back. Yeah, yeah. No, and there are, again, I mean, the, the famous cases of restitution battles are, are around paintings, of course, or around works of art of massive value. Um, and that's a, those are, are, are absolutely important. Um, and, and again, the question of what belongs to a national heritage. And so whether, whether a painting should remain in Austria, for example, because it is an essential part of Austrian heritage, even if it was stolen from, a, from an Austrian citizen during the war and ended up somewhere else. But then, the, the, in a way, I find it even more interesting when the object has no value, no monetary value, and um, and is being struggled over in this in this way. Mm-hmm. I guess emphasizing the other values that the you know, other values yeah. the object has. Yes, uh, Terrazaro, I want to just read just a, a portion from the book and concentrate on one factor in this. You say you've focused uh, uh, your book on the modern period. You give uh, several reasons. The emergence of mass politics, intensified pressure on states and governments to legitimize themselves and build emotional attachments through things, development of mechanized warfare and mass armies enhance the ability of states to move, transform, or destroy material objects. This is what I wanted to concentrate on, have you comment on. The expansion of consumerism profoundly altered the social and cultural meaning of objects to both individuals and states. That, that's a factor I 
I think I would not have thought of. Absolutely. I mean, I think um, the expansion of consumerism changed things, uh, uh, changed the way in which people related to uh, material objects in the sense that they more often became um, sites for the formation of identities, I would say, cultural or social um, identities. Um, so uh, perhaps that objects had a different kind of meaning. Um, it, and, and also that people were more likely to own more personal objects um, beyond kind of uh, the, the necessities of life. Uh, Leora Oslander, I wonder if you'd have any comment on that, the, the factor of consumerism. Yeah, I... I, I... Uh, building on what Tara has said, I think one can get a sense of how important things be, have become by the fact that one of the strategies of the Nazi, of the National Socialist regime uh, in the following 1933, was the gradual, um, um, the gradual theft from Jews of all of their possessions. Um, it was an incremental process that happened because of the sense that it is through your things that you are human. And that, and so by a, one of the goals of the National Socialist regime was to gradually reduce the humanness of Jews so that their ultimate exclusion and, uh, and annihilation would be um, acceptable um, to or pass on notice um, because they would have already been uh, cut out of the social body. And so by taking away your suit, taking away your home, taking away all of the things that mark you as a civilized person in a consumer society, um, you 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 do you dehumanize and you render someone and you exclude. So in a way, it's by by showing how a regime could try to to the would why a regime would would try to um, take things away that you understand how they are important in a context of a consumer society where that sense is you are. I mean, there's that old you know that old saying you are what you wear. Um, and uh, in the advertising industry, all of that is designed. To, um, to, to persuade us all of the essentialness of things in the making of the self. And it's been pretty effective at doing so. Mm. And that's a modern phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. Let's take another break. We'll come back with our uh, brief final segment here uh, on uh, the book Objects of War. We're talking to the uh, two editors. Liara Ostlander is professor of European social history and Arthur and Joanne Rasmussen, Professor of Western Civilization at University of Chicago. And Tara Zara is Professor of East European History at University of Chicago. Um, this uh, program today is part of the Bringing War Home Project. UPR is partnering with USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences, Mountain West Center for Regional Studies, USU History Department, USU Museum of Anthropology for this project. You can find this on our website, upr.org. The project is funded by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities Dialogues on the Experience of War program, and broadcasts of Bringing War Home on Utah Public Radio are supported by Utah Humanities. We'll have more following this. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. Uh, we have reached our last segment, and uh, this will be a fairly short segment, about six minutes uh, in this part of the program. We're talking with the editors of a book called Objects of War. Lior Oslander is uh, professor of European social history, and uh, Arthur and Joanne Rasmussen, professor of Western civilization at the University of Chicago, and uh, Tara Zara is professor of East European history at University of uh, Chicago. We're talking about material culture objects and their meaning on the program today. Um, so, Leo Oslander, I wonder if you could um, talk about, there's another 
illustration, a story that struck me in the book. It has to do with furniture. Um, you, there's a, a, a daughter of a, of a, uh, uh, woman, um, who, uh, talks about how her mother was very concerned about taking her furniture with her as she was mm-hmm. displaced and, and what that, and the daughter came to understand why and what that meant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and again, it's, I, it's, I think really important to try to put one's one's head around what it would mean in a in conditions of war to to save to try to save something to take uh, like a, a desk a bed a chest of drawers even a chair as opposed to say a locket or a spoon or a doll um, we're talking about a major object that you're trying to transport and people did go to and she did you know that it was go to great lengths often um, the the goal was again Continuity furniture is so linked to the domestic, um, often acquired when people got married or established a household, sometimes passed down um, across generations. So uh, even again, not fancy things, but just it's not it's not its monetary worth or its beauty that that gives it meaning, but the connections that it carries, the the evocations that it carries. And so uh, she was one of many examples of people who did go to extraordinary lengths um, to try to ship out, carry, or give to safekeeping uh, with a neighbor or a friend uh, before they fled a piece of furniture that for them symbolized or embodied, incarnated their, their family, their parents, their home, and normalcy and civilization at some level. Terrazaro, I want to have you respond to a, another story that really struck me in the book. Um, and this illustrates, the, I guess, the, the power of not having objects, the, the, the loss that's, that's there. This is uh, a woman who escaped the United Kingdom. All of her family members were lost in the Holocaust. Uh, Frances Nunley, her name. Sixty years later, you write in the book, she donated the last letters she had received from her parents and brothers to an archive. This is what she writes. My parents, brother, grandmother, aunts, uncles, etc., all died in the Holocaust. Nothing remains from them. No old furniture, works of art, a gold watch, a ring, all the things that are passed from generation to generation families. They're not even graves for these people. The only proof that they were once on this earth lies in their letters. I guess the letters themselves are objects. Absolutely. And, and I would say, go even further to say the handwriting, you know, um, is such a, a, would have been, I think, to this woman, such a valuable um, physical trace of her, of her relatives. Um, and I think, you know, part of the intense meaning that comes uh, from objects transported in times of, of forced migration and war is precisely um, how few they tend to be. So, I mean, here's a case where there's a complete absence except for those letters. And um, that absence, I, you know, reading, um, reading this, you know, the survivor's words, you could see how that absence kind of uh, haunted her throughout her lifetime. We just have uh, about two minutes left, so I'll give give you one minute each to sum up. Uh, Lira Oslander uh, first. What, what's what's your takeaway from from the book? I guess from this discussion and the meaning of objects. Yeah, I think um, it would be that that 
that that people people and things are intimately interconnected and that in times of war and displacement you see that interconnection particularly powerfully and it gives us a chance to better understand thinking seriously about things and, and how people handle them and states handle them in these times of violence gives us a chance to understand better both um how people become humans through their relationship to the material world, how people are themselves material, and also the consequences and, and meanings of violence. Mm. And uh, Tara Zara, same question to you. What's, what's your main takeaway? I can only uh, reinforce what Leora just said, but I think also in terms of understanding um, the experience of, of war and migration, it just gives us a, a very different um viewpoint than only studying texts and words. Um, and it is so often difficult to um, to get to that everyday experience, particularly of people who don't leave um, written traces, uh, and to get at the, the, the way in which people understand the meaning of home. Um, you know, I think this is really essential and um, really important, I think, not just for understanding history, but for conveying to the public what the experience of, of war uh, was like in the past and is like in the present. We've been talking with the editors of the book Objects of War. Uh, Lior Oslander is a professor of European social history and Arthur and Joanne Rasmussen, professor of Western Civilization at the University of Chicago. She's author of Cultural Revolutions and Taste and uh, Power. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's really thank been a you. pleasure. And uh, Tara Zara is a professor of European history at the University of Chicago. She's author of Kidnapped Souls, The Lost Children and the Great Departure. Thank you to you. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. And uh, this program is part of the Bringing War Home Project, project funded by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities Dialogues on the Experience of War program. And broadcasts of Bringing War Home on Utah Public Radio are supported by Utah Humanities. You can go to upr.org and look at uh, all that's happening in Bringing War Home Project. The next roadshow, and we're encouraging you to bring uh, your object in to get it uh, documented, uh, I believe is in Moab, October 22nd. Um, and thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today. Skywatcher Leo T here as we look up this time of year. The rich Milky Way crosses the zenith just after nightfall. The Milky Way extends straight up from the southwest horizon between sparkly Sagittarius and the glowing tail of Scorpius, passing overhead through the summer swan and the star trails overhead, running straight down to the northeast through Cassiopeia and Perseus. And out on the solar system, seven million miles out, dark. NASA's deep space pool ball, after a year-long journey, nudged asteroid Dimorphos of the binary asteroid Dimorphos and Didymos, lighting up the rock when impacted. NASA targeted the pair so that in the days following the impact, we're still waiting for some, uh, some sort of science on that, scientists can analyze to see if the impact has changed the orbit of Dimorphos enough to be a useful tool in knocking incoming space rocks that may be headed to Earth. This incredible cosmic pool shot has telescopes from all over the world aiming at the Didymos binary asteroid, hoping to learn all they can about the cloud of debris stirred by DART's impact, and more importantly, the effects of the collision on the orbit of the 560-foot-wide moonlit Dimorphos around the 2,500-foot-wide main asteroid Didymos. Altering Dimorphos' orbit around Didymos by at least 73 seconds is the primary purpose of the DART mission. We'll see. And even further out in space, the European Space Agency's very large telescope captured a view of the starburst galaxy. 
With gas clouds of ionized oxygen, hydrogen, and sulfur shown in blue and red in the image we'll have on our website here, bright golden swirling clouds of gas that generate an exceptionally high rate of star formation, the stellar nursery, a spiral galaxy, is located 50 million light years from Earth in the constellation Virgo. The starburst galaxy is one of the largest galactic members of the Virgo cluster, a large nearby grouping of galaxies where an unusually high amount of stars are born. In other space exploration, as Hurricane Ian closes to Florida, NASA is waiting to launch the new moon rocket now in October, somewhere between October 17th and the 31st, and if those don't work, November 12th is the next opportunity. Stay tuned, it's worth the wait as we launch back to the moon. It's many cultures, one sky, the sky is everyone's heritage, and interpretations and engagements are worldwide. While the Maori in New Zealand see a Milky Way made of glittering pebbles, the Hindus see a school of swimming dolphins, the Finns a flock of birds, for the Cherokee it's a dog spilling a bag of cornmeal. The Hungarians liken the Milky Way to horseshoe sparks from cavalry hastening over the pavement to battle. The Zulu think of it as a cow's stomach, while the ancient Greeks saw milk sprinkled across the sky. And in modern times, the Milky Way is the luminous band of faint light interspersed with dark clouds that encircles the sky, our galactic home, one we share with 200 billion resident suns and millions of solar systems. But it is also home to our imagination and a roadway paved with stardust and something magical and mystical. So feel the magic, keep looking up, looking around, and get lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T on UPR with translator station statewide and streaming live at upr.org.